up, Sassnacks? It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am breaking down my next edition of Droughtlander Book Club, where I discuss The Broken Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons 7 and 8, as well as Blood of My Blood, Men in Kilts season 2, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of The Broken Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. As I go through this, I try to change up the format for each of these book clubs, not necessarily on purpose, but just because I feel like each book is kind of its own beast and it requires a different approach. So for this one, I am going to start out talking about JL and then Kevin, but I've kind of embedded the themes and stuff into each discussion on the characters and stuff. And then after we talk about the love story and the approach to both of the characters and things like that, we'll talk a little bit about the plot. We're going to start out the conversation with J.L. O'Grady, Jenny Lynn. And I love that her father is the only one that calls her that. She's an NYPD cop. She has kind of had a crazy life thus far, as is par for the course for most brooch characters. But I feel like she's unique from the other women in the brooch universe. And I know that just in talking with some of you about it, that she's not a favorite. And in fact, Catherine realizes that as well. But she also kind of enjoys writing characters that not everybody loves, which I totally understand. But I really like JL. I don't know why that is. I feel like her life is very complicated and complex when we meet her. Perhaps that's part of the reason why I like this book. It's one of my favorites of the series. And again, I know that that is not a popular opinion. The Broken Brooch takes two characters that are very much at a tumultuous turning point in their lives. Like they're at a crossroads. The two main characters, Kevin and JL, they find each other in that space in their life when they just know that they can't keep going the way that they have been all of this time. And so I think that that's why they fit so well together. And it's one of those instantaneous connections between them. I know that a lot of people say it's such a short time. Like, how can you realistically say that they really love each other? And I get it. Okay. Like, I understand that this book takes place over the course of like 72 hours. And how can you possibly know that you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody after 72 hours? But I really do feel that there is something to be said about finding someone that just completes you in a way that you instantly feel that connection with them. And like they understand you on a level that nobody ever has before and you feel like you can confide in them. Not to mention all the trauma that they go through in this book that, yeah, no wonder they cling to each other because they're the rock in the storm of their lives. So I love this book, not to mention that it's a contemporary romance, which is kind of a departure from many of the books in this series. That's not saying anything new, but 
I just found it interesting that Kevin's love story is a contemporary romance, as was Elliot's. I mentioned to Catherine when I was chatting with her, I said, I just think it would be very apropos if JC's love story was also a contemporary romance, because that would be all the Frasers falling in love in the modern age, which I think is cool. It's it's a cool through line. Anyway, so Jenny Lynn O'Grady, she's a tough girl. I do kind of draw a lot of comparison between her and Kenzie, but she's almost more standoffish than Kenzie. It's like, you know how there's like short guy syndrome, like Napoleon syndrome? <laughs> I kind of feel like JL is so feisty that her, it just explodes out of her tiny little body. I almost feel like she has been damaged so much by what she's experienced prior to the start of this book that she feels like she has to put on that tough girl Bragazza Tosta persona so that she can get through life. Like she feels like if she lets anybody in or shows her vulnerability, it's game over. Not only that, but literally that facade is all that's holding her together at this point. She's made the executive decision that she's gonna get off her bar stool and stop crying into her beer every night while listening to George Strait. But that doesn't mean that she's not still having a hard time. She's very good at her job, but she, like I said, is at a crossroads where she's not sure if she wants to continue to be a police officer, be a detective. Being in that line of work has kind of colored her view of the world. She has a very negative, pessimistic view on things. Like whenever she first comes out to California and she sees everything that the Frasers have done for Austin, there's a part of her that is just like, there's no way that these people could be decent people just to be decent people. Like that doesn't happen. 95% of the time when people have money and power, they use it to their advantage. And most often people get hurt or they break the law. Like there's got to be ulterior motives here. It's not just that they're doing it out of the kindness of their hearts, which they are, but that's kind of where she's at whenever she finds out that they may be grooming Austin for some sort of position. She automatically gets her back up and she's like, no, I want to know what it is. You need to tell me. You can't just have plans for my son and not tell me what's going on. She doesn't have a lot of trust and faith in people. She has a very tight circle. I mean, her husband has cheated on her repeatedly. She's fresh off of the divorce train and kind of looking for fun over the weekend, but she doesn't trust anybody other than her brothers, her father, and her partner, Pete. To pick up on that is a very different place from where we have met other protagonists up to this point in the series, I think. I think that might honestly be part of the reason that people don't connect to her because they pick up on that almost aggressive nature in her, but it's really just that she's damaged and she doesn't know who she can trust. And so I think whenever she realizes that she can trust Kevin, that's why she latches onto him so fiercely because he's like a life raft for her in a lot of ways. It's funny because I'm talking in the series, like a lot of the characters pick up on that fierceness in her. And I think it's interesting that Kenzie immediately thought, well, if this chick comes into the picture as part of the family, her and David are not going to get along at all. That they would butt heads because JL is a very black and white type person and David lives in the gray, right? So there was that automatic assumption that they wouldn't get along. But then later on in the book, 
when Elliot is asking David about his opinion of JL, he says she's highly competent and dedicated, level-headed, devoted to family, and trustworthy. And he also describes her as a tank built to smash through obstacles. So I think in a lot of ways, he actually admires her. And that's the beauty of the McClinna clan. They're all very different personalities, but at the end of the day, they all want what's best for the family and they're willing to work together to make it happen. But also having so many characters with so many different takes on the world and so many different viewpoints really, I think, allows them to function in space and get things done in a way because they're open-minded about what each other thinks most of the time. That's what David thinks. And then Meredith, on the other hand, is predicting that even though Elliot eventually plans to give the reins over to Kevin, she feels like JL will hold the real power just because of her forceful nature. Like she's just willing to take risks. And that's something that we'll talk about a little bit later with respect to how she differs from Kevin's personality. But I feel like She's almost more of an alpha personality than Kevin, if that makes sense. I mean, compared to all the other men in this series, he's definitely less alpha male. I think he grows a lot in this book, but if he was any closer to like David or Elliot or even Bram, like honestly, there's no way in hell that JL and Kevin would have worked because JL's so forceful with what she thinks and wants that if she were to get a man like that, they would just butt heads so much. And that's a lot of what we see in Diamond is their differences in personality and the constant struggle to make things work and really set their minds and hearts and on the right path and in the right direction. That's part of the reason that I love Diamond is because we see See the continuation of JL and Kevin's relationship. I mean, we can talk about how what David thinks and what Meredith thinks, but really, and let's be honest, what matters is what Elliot thinks. And for the majority of the first two thirds of this book, probably, Elliot is not on board the JL train. And yes, it has to do with the fact that he thinks that she's married. I think that he genuinely likes her. And we see that come across in the car when they're on their way home from the basketball game. And he kind of is just asking her, you know, at what point do you decide what is right and what's wrong? Where do you draw the line on risking other people's lives and health and happiness? She answers very well. And that's what Elliot is agreeing with, I think, with that satisfied look that he gives her in the rearview mirror. And she says, you know, if I ran into a dark alley after a gunman, there's a chance that I could get shot. And if my partner follows me, there's also a chance that he could get shot. But there's a 100% chance that if we don't follow him, he could shoot someone else. I thought that was a very concise and understated way of saying, look, you may not agree with what me and Kevin are up to, but... It's A, not your place, and B, it's just as much Kevin's decision as it is mine. Like, I'm not dragging him into anything. Mind your own damn business. But in a very understated, smooth, Elliot Fraser-ish way, which I was totally on board with. And I think that that was really the start of Elliot deciding that he actually liked this woman. And then from there, we really start to see him hound on Kevin about Kevin's life decisions versus targeting JL and her line of thinking on it. Like I said, JL's recently divorced whenever all this comes through, and she made the decision not to tell Austin. And I think she 
tells herself that she did it because she wasn't with Austin to help him process it. But really, I think she's taking the easy way out. And through her conversations with Meredith, I think JL comes to realize that too, that she didn't make that decision for Austin's sake. She made it for her sake. And while the experience with Ryan was an extremely painful one that damaged her in ways that I don't think she's even willing to admit to herself at the beginning of this book, this book is all about honesty and the truth will out and I'll talk about that theme a little bit later whenever we get down to Kevin but whether you like it or not you can't keep a secret forever it's kind of one of those things where JL keeps telling people about the divorce but she's not telling the one person that she probably really should tell so that's kind of where I do get frustrated with her and I understand why other people get frustrated with her but we've all been there like she feels like she needs to talk about it and she needs to tell people and she needs to be honest with people that's just what her personality and her upbringing are compelling her to do but there's that fear that she can't put any trust in other people even her son who you know you're supposed to trust your closest family to love you no matter what it's like Kevin tells her she's afraid that neither one of them love each other enough to appreciate that honesty and to love each other despite it learning to trust people even on such a basic level as to trust your own son's love for you that's a lot of growth in this book over the course of three days. Ryan cheating on JL, it's not just about doubting your self-worth when you go through something like that. It's also about, for JL, doubting who she is as a person. Like, she's a detective and she didn't put two and two together. Like, the hastily made beds, the password-protected accounts, random smell of unfamiliar perfume. You know, she's like, how did I not see that? What kind of detective am I? So not only is she questioning whether she wants to keep being a cop because of everything she's recently gone through with the DeSalvo case and getting shot and recovering from that, but she's also doubting whether she's even any good at it anymore because how good of a job is she really doing at her job if she can't even tell that her own husband is cheating on her? So there's a lot going on with JL. And then when she meets Kevin, it just kind of really starts to snowball. This whole romance, relationship, vacation, sex thing that they have going on really just amplifies everything else crazy that's going on in her life. And for her to tell Kevin that she's divorced... I mean, 100% makes sense why he's no holds barred. Okay, let's do this. And Kenzie to know that she's divorced. I don't really know why she would tell Kenzie. More and more people keep finding out about this. And I'm like, okay, you got to tell Austin. Like, I'm not a procrastinator. I say it every time whenever we have one of these book clubs. I don't understand why people just can't be honest with each other. And every time I say that, you guys are like, yeah, but what fun would that be? There wouldn't be any plot twist or character conflict if everybody was just honest with each other but let this entire book put procrastinators on notice okay just tell whoever it is what you got to tell them because otherwise they might get kidnapped by the cartel and hidden in a cave and you might have to go spelunking even though you might be claustrophobic <laughs> this is the moral of the story it's so crazy 
how can anybody not like this book? It literally, it's a short read. It's got action. It's got romance. It's got a mystery novel element to it and the characters that you all love. So that for me does it. Like that checks all the boxes. So anyway, this massive chemistry that Kevin and JL have, I've got it broken down by list after we talk about Kevin as a person. Then we'll talk about Kevin and JL together. But this massive like fire inducing chemistry that these two have there's just something like you knew a brooch was involved the minute that you read that connection that they have that spark that they have you knew they were going to hook up because that's what they were both looking for neither one of them were looking for a serious relationship let's put ourselves in jail shoes for a second you're on vacation in napa recently divorced a smoking hot rich guy is hitting on you and wants to hook up with you what do you do I mean, like, really, I would have considered her insane if she had not taken him up on his offer, to be quite honest. So I don't really feel like she had a choice. I mean, she did, but what kind of choice is that, really? What really kind of throws a wrench in the works, I guess, if you want to call it that, is Austin barging in on them. If that hadn't happened, none of the rest of this story likely would have happened either. I think once he understands that she's divorced, it kind of becomes a non-issue because Austin really loves Kevin, and Kevin kind of views Austin as a son in a lot of ways. It's not really a problem once you take the Ryan factor out of it, but I can see why Austin's pissed off. I don't blame him at all for that. We really start to see how personal trauma can affect your mental processing and your emotions in a way that isn't necessarily like it's eye-opening for sure but I don't think it's really healthy to put yourself through that especially when you don't have to put somebody through that or yourself through that for JL part of the reason she didn't want to tell Austin was because she was afraid that he would be upset or he would hold on to false hopes of her and Ryan getting back together I feel like that's a valid fear for her but also learning to trust Austin's love for her was another major thing I feel like that whole issue is compounded by the fact that she hasn't even been able to be honest with Austin about the fact that she's his mother. So if she can't be honest about something as big as that, through no fault of her own, like this is the the hand that she was dealt. She made this decision to allow her mother and father to raise Austin as their own. And then by some will of God or what have you, that all got thrown out the window and her mother died when JL was 17, right after Austin had born. He was like two months old. So she she did end up raising him, but under the pretense that he was her little brother, not that he was her son. So yeah, I get it. The longer you hold on to that secret, the more impossible it kind of becomes for you to be honest about it and to say, oh yeah, well, we've been living a lie for 17 years. Sorry. That's just not really something that is easy to fess up to. And so I do feel like it's one of those things that the hurdle just keeps getting higher and higher the more time that passes. JL mentions that earlier on in her life, she had brought up the idea to her father of being honest with Austin and telling him that she was his mother. Pops was just like very opposed to that idea. He didn't think that it was the right 
right time or place and like it would dishonor her mother and yada 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 and I think that reaction was purely based off of the fact that it was too early in the grieving process like he had not fully accepted the situation it was too raw and that was part of the reason that JL didn't feel like she could be honest now because that interaction with her father from years and years and years ago was on the back of her head but then when we see how he reacts to it when she tells him that Austin knows the truth he's very okay with it and he's like oh I mean I'm kind of surprised but I'm glad that you told him like he deserves to know and oh by the way here's Chris's phone number in case you want to call him That is just such a 360. And so it really does make me wonder how long it's been since that initial conversation that JL had with her father about telling Austin. And when the initial thing came about of her maybe wanting to tell him, was it when he was really young at an age where he may not have understood the situation and and what was going on really? And that's part of the reason that Pops didn't want to tell him because now he's almost an adult. And I feel like on a certain level, he can understand things in a way that he may not have previously been able to understand. So maybe that was the situation and JL just misread it because there is a lot of that that happens in this book. JL misinterpreting the situation and people's motivations. She's one of those people that kind of just lets her imagination run wild and makes up all of these terrible scenarios for things that could happen when in reality, things aren't as bad as they seem. I think this story more than any anything makes her realize that oh my life isn't quite as bad as I thought it was after all this hell that we've been through over the course of this 72 hours a very interesting bunch of twists and turns that these characters go through for sure as for bringing Chris into it at the end it didn't surprise me that Austin and JC put together this whole plot to bring Chris into the fold after they found out who he was. I think that it was a mistake on JL's part to kind of give in to Austin's berating and tell him that his father was a power forward in the NBA because you can see, and I I had the exact same thought as JC is talking about this, that, well, that automatically narrows it down because you're not black or biracial, so your father has to be white. And how many white power forwards are there in the NBA? From there, you kind of just, the list gets very small, very quickly. So do I think that it was the right decision for her to just come out and say that? Not necessarily. I think that it added some extra distraction to the issue at hand. I think she could have just said, I met him when I was 17 at summer camp and I'll tell you about it later. Now, whether that would have been sufficient for Austin, who had quite clearly dug his feet in at that point in time, who can say? But I did feel like that was like, okay, how on earth is he possibly going to concentrate now when he knows his father plays in the NBA. A lot of questionable activity going on. Questionable decisions, let's put it that way. Just because I wouldn't do that doesn't mean it's not a realistic decision for other people. So I do struggle with that a little bit. And I try to tone down my own thoughts, but that was kind of where my head was going on that. Chris shows up at the gala and yet again, like I said, JL is one of those people that has let her head go to the worst possible case scenario. And I think that's the cop in her. As a cop, you see a lot of terrible things. You see the worst side of humanity as a cop most of the time. That's your job, responding to horrible things. So... 
naturally her head jumps five steps ahead to the worst possible conclusion when in reality Chris is a great guy he takes a a real good long look at Austin and finds out he's a senior in high school counts backward realizes hmm I think this is my son and instead of just calling her out on it he very covertly leans in for like to kiss her on the cheek before he goes and he says call me tomorrow at that point I think she realizes he really is he he is a good guy like there's a reason that I slept with him 17 years ago I'm just gonna be like you know what you're everything you're thinking right now yeah it's 100% true And he's just like, I'll be in touch. And we find out that after everything that happened with her getting shot and all that, like he kept tabs on her to make sure she was okay and like followed her career, says that she 100% earned every promotion that she got. And like, he's proud of her. Like, he's so sweet. And I was so happy for JL in that moment. She has closure and her life is a lot more put together. She's learning to trust people again. And I was so happy for her that that didn't end up being a complete clusterfuck of a situation and that everything ended up okay because she's had a heck of a time. So one little nice piece of writing that I wanted to point out before we kind of move on to talking about Kevin. Before Kevin and JL sleep together, after the basketball game, Elliot makes Kevin ride with him and makes JL ride with Meredith, you know, very much being the fatherly figure, the responsible adult, even though we're talking about like 35 and 40 year old people here, okay? So JL waits for Kevin on the porch. She's like, you're not getting away from me. Like I told you I was a sure thing and I'll be waiting. So one in the morning rolls around, it's pitch dark, it smells of ozone, she can hear the thunder in the distance and see the lightning crackling across the sky. And there's this impending storm going on. And that whole night as they're like walking up the stairs and they're talking about all this tumultuous stuff going on in their lives, there's the intermittent cracks of lightning and the thunder and it's a literal and a figurative because this is the point in the story where the door blow off of this entire plot and it's one storm after another. So I like that it's kind of this rolling in slowly over the horizon and then by the time Austin walks in on them, it is pouring down rain. Everything is a mess. That sense of foreboding just carries on through the rest of the story, but I really like that setting up of this emotional storm that's about to break loose as well as the the literal storm on their doorstep. Lori says, I have a love-hate relationship with JL. And then Connie says, me too. I got so mad she kept those secrets that caused so much strife. Connie's my girl, though. She, You are the one that is always like, I don't understand why people can't just be honest with each other. <laughs> Janine, she's a mama bear. Nothing wrong with that. That is one of my favorite things about this story. JL's always had to hide her motherly instincts in a way because she's just a sister. And even though she did raise Austin, she's not his mother as far as everybody else is concerned. And we really see that in this overwhelming desire that she feels whenever we get towards the end of the book where they're getting ready to rescue everybody from the hangar. She's with Kenzie and Kenzie is changing into her clothes for the assault and 
She's rubbing on her baby bump and talking about being pregnant and her desire to go and protect her children. And JL kind of feels a yearning in herself because watching Kinsey stroke her baby bump and like kind of find joy in her pregnancy, she notes that she had to carry Austin in silence and she didn't get to share that joy with anybody. And I really feel like that's very much how her entire life has been. She hasn't gotten really to share the joy of being a mother and everything that comes with that. She's had to put it on hold and so I think being able to embrace that side of her personality over the course of this book really helps her to kind of feel complete in a way and I think that that shows a lot in her transformation from the beginning to the end of this book. Angela, half graceful ballerina and half tank, a great juxtaposition. She is, she, and I think watching her grow over the course of the next couple books is a great joy for me over the course of this series, really watching her come into her own and fit within the clan. I think that she's a great fit, especially a great foil for Kevin. And she fits in so well with David. It's kind of always willing to call him out on anything that she thinks is questionable, which I think is exactly what David needed because honestly, <laughs> he lives in the gray way too much. I'm sorry, but they are just asking for like the FBI to come beat down their door or something. Janine, I appreciate the strong-willed women in these books if they weren't they be swallowed up by the men yeah I mean and it's so it would be so easy for that to happen I think Catherine does a really good job of creating these really strong-willed and independent and fiery women Tiffany I think that knowing 17 year old boys JL has to tell him he would not have let it go or the resentment would have been insurmountable yeah I mean I agree that she needed to tell him I just think there was a time and a place for it and how she told him wasn't necessarily something that I agreed with when there was so much on the line. It was a bit more distracting from the task at hand, I guess. But I can see what you're saying that he he may not have let it go and she knew that. That's why she just told him. Lori said, Elliot makes me so mad in this book. And then Kathy replied, he was so judgmental and with his past glass house buddy. I'm right there with you guys because Elliot was so, so, so frustrating to me in this book. And I really had to dig deep within myself to find a bit of grace in understanding where he's coming from. So I will talk about it and hopefully we can have a bit of a therapy session <laughs> about Elliot's motivations. I was even really mad at Meredith because I'm just like, Kevin is like 42 at this point. He is old enough to make his own decisions and make his own mistakes. And for you to not be able to trust him to make the right call. Like it never even crosses their mind that there may be factors at play that like they don't have all the answers. They just immediately assume that Kevin made an immature and rash decision that's going to ruin the rest of his life. And I think that they're so used to having all the answers that it never crossed their mind that there was something that they didn't know about JL. They didn't know that she wasn't married. And I saw one of you comment, I don't know how they didn't know that. But this is very recent, her divorce. The papers just got signed like the week before this visit to Napa. So they wouldn't know because all of the research and background checks that they did on Austin and his family were a couple years ago or last year or whatever when Austin moved out to California. So at that point, JL and Ryan were still married and there was really no way to know that it was an unhappy marriage. 
they just kind of assumed that they had a good grasp on the whole picture when in reality there was a bunch of shit that they didn't know and that definitely factored in to their decision and their actions and behavior over the course of this book. So, Kevin Allen. I love me some Kevin. I really have not heard a lot of people say that Kevin is like their guy. I've seen a bunch of different ones. David's a very popular one. A few of the guys from later books that I won't say in case you're following along with the series as I cover these books, but not a lot of Kevin love. I love Kevin. Again, part of the reason that I love this book, I think. He was a paramedic. I feel like that kind of career choice says a lot about him. And we can talk for days about the differences between Kevin and JL. But the fact that he was a paramedic speaks volumes on how they connect on a very vital level. They're both first responders at heart. When that explosion went off in that cave, they both ran towards the cave to help in whatever capacity that they could. So I think that that 100% speaks to them understanding each other. When JL was looking for a partner and she told Pete that she didn't want it to be a cop. Every single guy that her brothers and Pete tried to set her up with was a cop or a detective or a private detective, whatever. And she said, I don't want that. I want a life away from that because I deal with that all day. I don't want it when I go home at night. And she already had one go around with her husband. So what Pete was concerned about and voiced his concerns was that if she looked for someone that wasn't a cop, she was likely going to find someone who didn't understand her lifestyle and that compulsion to serve the greater good. I think that she really found a happy medium with Kevin because he doesn't put his life on the line, but he understands the need to serve people, to help people, and to run towards the fire and not away from it. I wanted to make sure to talk about that because I feel like that's a big one when you're talking about understanding Kevin and JL's draw to each other. It's been about three years in brooch world since the emerald brooch, and a lot of things have changed for Kevin. He has completed his CPA, uh, has his license, and he's been made the new CFO of McLenna Corporation. He is in deep with this new organizational structure of Mac Corp. For a long time, Kevin thought that he was being groomed to take over. Elliot's position to become president of the corporation. Then David got promoted to president of the corporation. And so I think that really started to create this rift that Kevin is also feeling at this point when this book begins. He's starting to feel like there's not really a place for him in the long term. He's also at the point where he wants more out of his life than what he has. He's in his early 40s. He's not married. He doesn't have children. Children. He wants a life. And by continuing down the road that he's on, by constantly being with Elliot and Meredith and James Cullen, he loves them all dearly. That has never been the issue. What the issue is, is that Elliot is holding on so tight that Kevin can't have his own desires. He can't follow his own ambitions. And it's just really starting to weigh heavily on Kevin. So he is also at a crossroads when this 
book begins. And I think that's what opens him up to the possibility of having more. I think if JL had come into his life even six months earlier, this likely would not have happened. But it's because Kevin is now the CFO of Mac Corp and he is working closely on this new winery acquisition along with Kinsey. And he spends a lot of time out in Napa away from the Frasers that he's really starting to feel a sense of freedom for the first time. He realizes, oh, I kind of like this. Like not having to put Elliot and Meredith to bed before my life can start. And, you know, having late night dinners with dates and squeezing in companionship anywhere he can. For a long time, he felt like that was worth the sacrifice. He got to live a life of luxury and have more money than he probably knew what to do with because he made those sacrifices of being there for Elliot and Meredith and James Cullen. But now he's like, you know, if all roads lead to nowhere, what am I doing? So that's kind of where we find Kevin at this point. One of my questions that I asked Catherine about this, I said, many people think it's a big leap for Kevin's character from book four to book five. Why did Elliot decide to make Kevin CFO and what made him qualified for that position? And she said, I think it's three years since we saw Kevin in Emerald. He's finished his accounting degree and got a CPA license. As for Elliot, I think he wanted to reward his son and see if he could handle the job. That really kind of filled in the blank for me on, okay, he's testing him. If he has this ultimate plan to have him take over the company and eventually be David's boss, which I'm like, oh, I can see that not going well. But CFO was like a little less responsibility. Elliot could still keep an eye on him, but it was putting trust in him and showing him, at least as far as Elliot thought, like showing him that he appreciates him and he's willing to trust him with the company. When JL first meets Kevin, she jumps to a lot of conclusions. And this is where I was like, you know, she really does like just kind of judge books by their cover or misread situations all the time. And for her to be a cop and like be used to interviewing people and reading on social cues and things like that, I feel like there's a lot of miscommunication here. I almost want to call it her being a little arrogant and like feeling that she is seeing the whole picture when in fact she's really not. <laughs> so I do feel like maybe maybe she is a little bit arrogant. She sees how well-dressed Kevin is, how he has an expensive haircut, and she immediately jumps to the conclusion that Kevin is arrogant and self-absorbed. When in reality, like Kevin is probably one of the least arrogant men of the McClinic clan. She really just mistakes him for being a metrosexual. She kind of just foils all of that into negative connotation, which again, I think has a lot to do with her mindset right at this point in the story. But then whenever she gets a second impression of him, she says he might still be self-absorbed, but not arrogant. He seemed more charming and goofy than anything else. And I think that's why I love him because he's just, he's more of a go with the flow type guy. I like that about him, even though by the end of this book, he's kind of found his feet and is willing to be more assertive with what he believes and fight for things instead of just rolling over and taking it. Kenzie, whenever she sees this initial spark of interest in JL, before she really meets Kevin, but she's heard a lot about him, Kenzie tells JL, beware, he comes with a warning, heartbreaker, 
proceed with caution. So he's followed well in the footsteps of David and Elliot, and he is definitely a ladies' man. And JL makes the comment, she says, if he weren't so charming, she'd be rolling her eyes at his innuendos and double entendres. But he was sizzling hot. He's one of those people that it's not just this raw magnetism. Like, he certainly has that, and he's a very handsome man. But he leans a lot on his personality and his wit and his charm and his ability to laugh and have a good time. And I feel like all of that rolls into this ladies' man thing that he has. And it's so interesting after four books to finally get a book where we see a female protagonist that has eyes for this man and we can really fully see him without some grudge or lens or oh he's immature oh he's too young or oh he's childish whatever that we've seen throughout the course of these other books I feel like there's always some excuse for why we're seeing him as immature or not quite fleshed out as a character and here we get like a full 360 view of this guy that we've slowly gotten to know over the course of the last three books because he wasn't in the ruby brooch. Kevin is a fantastic horseman and that's actually how he met Kit and Elliot. He played polo for several years but then he transitioned over into the show jumping world which Kit was heavily involved in and that's kind of where they met and they I believe went to high school together and they were really good friends all kind of throughout that time and that is actually when Elliot first met him as a 17 year old boy and we're really starting to as we get this story we're starting to see the parallels that are building between Kevin and Elliot and JL and Austin. Kevin was 17 when he first met his bio father. Austin 17 when he first meets his biological father. Neither one of them knew that their father wasn't really their father. So it makes sense on a subconscious level even that they are drawn to each other and that Austin admires Kevin and looks to him for advice because without even knowing it, they have lived a lot of similar experiences. I kind of wish we got more of that relationship in future books, but I understand that at this point there are just so many people that it's kind of impossible to build on all of these relationships. David and Kevin is one of those relationships that heretofore has kind of left me flustered. No matter how hard I tried to understand what the heck was going on, I just couldn't fully get it. The comprehension wasn't there. And then when I was reading this book, it clicked for me. What did it was a conversation that Kinsey has with JL when they are heading to the hangar to rescue the rest of the family. I think it's when they're in the Land Rover and Kevin goes to open the gate and they have this tete-a-tete. Kenzie says she's never seen Kevin like this before, like singularly focused and very zoned in on what he's doing and like willing to take risks and do what needs done. I mean, we go over it over and over again in this book. He errs on the side of caution, like urges prudence, as he puts it. That side of him has taken a backseat over the course of this book because 
things that he cares about are on the line and he can't afford to be cautious anymore. That, I think, is appealing to Kenzie and she makes the comment David would be so proud of him for how he's taken this whole situation in stride. She says that she feels like David has been really hard on Kevin as a general rule as long as she's known him because she feels like David knew the potential that Kevin had within him to be the kind of man that he has become over the course of the few days that this book has taken place over. This is never expressly said, but based on the relationship that Elliot and David have, I'm guessing David knows what Elliot's plan is for Kevin, that he wants him to take over the company. It's not really surprising to anyone when the news comes out that Elliot is Kevin's father, and likely David already knew that. That goes a long way towards me understanding David's whole thought process. David and I do not think the same. That's a struggle for me to understand David as a character. So I really do think that that line about Kinsey saying that David pushed Kevin because he knew how much potential he had, that made sense to me. We even see over the course of this book the push and pull that David and Kevin have. David intentionally pulled the surveys from Meredith and Elliot's stack of papers that they get every day because he didn't think that it was important enough to warrant them investigating it further. And so he had Kevin pull the files and Kevin didn't say jack shit to anybody about it. He just did it. He did what he was asked. So David knows Kevin can keep his mouth shut and he still pokes the bear and makes fun of Kevin and like makes him seem like he's less than and I guess that's all him trying to motivate Kevin to kick it in gear and build some maturity perhaps. We do get a little bit of an explanation from Kevin's point of view when he's talking about how him and David have always locked horns and kind of butted heads and Kevin kind of views it as vying for Elliot's attention. So to kind of flip it on its head and get David's viewpoint through Kenzie, that that's not really what it was about was very interesting. And to find out that Kevin feels like the dynamic between him and David has gotten better since David found Kenzie and they had the twins. That was interesting to me. And I was like, okay, so is it more so that David has his priorities rearranged now? And that's why he's not giving Kevin as hard of time as he was? What is the motivating factor there? So there's still a lot of questions that I have on the David and Kevin front, but things are starting to make a little more sense as far as all of this is concerned. So I hope that this wasn't like super convoluted. I hope that this was productive in my explanation of their relationship. Kevin's relationship with Elliot is super complex and it's one that has built continuously over the course of the past three books. We first meet Kevin in The Last McLennan. I immediately loved him and we see how attentive to detail he is, how much he cares about Elliot and Meredith and is literally willing to be hauled over hot coals to make sure that they get what they need, whether that is emotionally or physically. Meredith even says, I think it was in Sapphire is what it was. She was talking to Charlotte about how 
how her and Elliot never would have made it through her second cancer diagnosis and the birth of James Cullen and all of that if it had not been for Kevin. Their lives would not be able to exist in the way that they do without Kevin being there for them. You can't just dismiss that kind of relationship. And to know that this entire time watching this relationship evolve over the course of three freaking books that Elliot knew that he was Kevin's father and didn't say anything. (laughs) I get it. He was trying to respect Kevin's mother's wishes for him to not know, but also to have a relationship with your son and not be honest enough to say that he's your son. Like, I know it wasn't Elliot's choice. He would have much rather acknowledged Kevin and had it out in the open and given him everything that he could have possibly given him, all the opportunities that Kevin could have had. I get that. Like, I understand, but I don't understand. I think Kevin is right there as well. That is a very frustrating thing to have such an intimate relationship with someone who it comes out in the end is actually your biological father. How do you reconcile that in your head? How can you not be upset about it that you've been lied to all this time? And then to add to all of that, that Elliot relies on Kevin so much. And I think part of that probably comes from the fact that he does love him as a son and views it as like part of Kevin's role and responsibility in Elliot's life to take on that persona, I guess. But you can't expect somebody to care the way a son would if he doesn't actually know that he's your son. I think there's a lot of tension going on initially between them anyway. It's not even the whole JL and Kevin thing that kicks off this series of events that unfolds. Kevin is tired of being treated like a piece of garbage. He's tired of not being respected as a man for his opinions. He's tired of having to wait on the Fraser's hand and foot and being relied upon for so much. He's Elliot's sounding board when Elliot doesn't want to stress Meredith out. And that is completely unfair that he just, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to worry Meredith with it. So I'm going to worry you with it instead. Like what? That's not how this works. I'm a person like this is above my pay grade, buddy. Okay. And Kevin's not quite to that point yet where he's going to just take a step back and be like, "Mm, nope, not my place, but he's getting there. And Meredith sees that she has warned Elliot time and again, he's not going to take this forever. And you are going to have to be honest with him or let him go because he's his own man and you have to treat him with the respect that that deserves. Part of me thinks that on a subconscious level is maybe what Elliot wants. He wants to push Kevin to become his own man, kind of like David does, but he's going about it in a little bit of a different way throughout all of this, hands down, probably the biggest bombshell period for me in this book was finding out that Elliot was Kevin's father. And that whole process of James Cullen overhearing that conversation, that's a lot for a 13-year-old, even an emotionally mature and extremely smart 13-year-old to handle on his own. And who's he going to go to? He's going to go to his big brother. That's how he thinks of Kevin. And he, he even says that much whenever we kind of get his point view on it. So he's not thinking about the emotional implications of dropping this kind of news on Kevin. And to be honest, 
James Cullen has had a bomb dropped on him as well. I mean, he's found out that one of his best friends, Austin, his biological mother is his sister. (laughs) He found out that his father has cancer and he found out that Kevin is actually his brother. You can't blame the kid for going to somebody that he trusts with this information. He just didn't think about how that relaying of that information was going to impact the person that he was telling. It's not like Kevin wasn't involved in this news at all. So I really felt bad for Kevin when he finds out. Like he's already stressed out about finding Austin and everything that's going on with JL and trying to process this cluster that is the situation with Elliot and his opinions on Kevin's relationship with JL and dodging through that minefield and then to have James Cullen come in telling him all this like you're my real brother like my actual brother mom said that Austin deserves to know that JL is his real mother and you deserve to know that dad is your real father and Kevin is just so flabbergasted like he literally falls back onto the couch and just can't even process so Kevin in his reaction is pretty aggressive with JC I would say and like you don't know what you're talking about calm down one thing leads to another and then James Cullen bursts into tears and he's like my dad has cancer it's gonna make him piss his pants like it's funny how he's describing it but also not funny at all and like so terrible that just broke my heart it's so terrible because this is literally like the one person that James Cullen thinks he can go to and get help or like have somebody talk to him about it and this is literally sent Kevin for a loop like he doesn't even fully believe what JC is saying because he feels like with his bond with Elliot, Elliot would have told him that he had cancer. He's very confident in that assumption. And then when JC says, my mom didn't even know, she had to pull it out of him. Then Kevin's like, oh shit, this is real. And this is something that I'm going to have to process, but not right now. And I feel like all of this has come at such a terrible time. And and Kevin does a very good job of putting it in its little box and compartmentalizing and going to find Austin because that's what he has to do in this exact moment and everything else can wait. But just imagine trying to handle that amongst everything else. I just can't. Like, I felt really bad for everybody involved at this point in the story. And then JL, again, assuming that Kevin just couldn't keep his mouth shut and that's how everybody else found out that she was Austin's mother when, in fact, Kevin did keep his mouth shut at his own expense. This caused massive arguments between him and Elliot. This wasn't something that was just kind of glossed over and they're like, we'll talk about it later. No, like, there was knocked down drag out words were said that cannot be taken back fights between Kevin and Elliot because Kevin chose to keep his mouth shut when everything's said and done at the end of the book the whole story kind of comes out and it turns out that Kevin's mother did not want Elliot to acknowledge Kevin I don't know whether that was because her husband didn't know but I would assume as Elliot assumes 
that Mr. Allen knows that Kevin is not his son. They had many visits with many a fertility doctor, and it was discovered that Kevin's father had low motility and bad morphology, some technical term that I'm not familiar with. But basically, there were no problems with Kevin's mother and all kinds of problems with Kevin's father. And it was pretty much impossible for them to naturally conceive a child. They just kind of gave up on having children, I think. They eventually separated. And that's when Elliot met Kevin's mother. And they proceeded to have a relationship. Now, this is apparently the second married woman that Elliot had a relationship with as a young man. I thought when reading and doing the math on it that this was the married woman that Elliot was talking about in The Last McLenna, but apparently not. In The Broken Brooch, it said when Elliot's talking to Kevin that he didn't want everybody to find out that he had been that guy that got his heart broken by two different married women. So he kind of just went back to Scotland after she told him that she had reconciled with her husband and just licked his wounds there and and kind of avoided Kentucky for a while. And then when Kevin and Kit became friends later on when they were teenagers, that's when Elliot found out that Kevin existed and that he was his son. So I'm sure there were many a conversation to be had about whether Elliot could tell Kevin and all of that. I appreciate Elliot being willing to respect Kevin's mother's wishes and to not say anything, but I don't agree with that decision by her at all. I don't think it was fair to anybody to make that decision for Kevin and take that choice away from him to know who his father was. We'll leave it there. I can be mad at her because we don't know her from Adam, okay? And I don't have to get in her head. I can be mad at her. That's about what I have on Kevin. Angela says, in this book and the next, you really see Kevin assert himself with the family. I do feel like he grows into himself a lot over this book, Three Brooches, and The Diamond Brooch. And The Diamond Brooch is very self-discovery heavy for Kevin. And that's all I'll say about it, just in case nobody's read that far. Barb, she wanted her husband to be Kevin's dad. Same thing happens in many families. Yeah, I understand. But again, I just don't think it's fair to Kevin. I mean, think about any health issues that could have become a thing and Kevin wouldn't have known anything about it. That and it's a big fat why. Like I'm an honest person by nature. If you ask me a question, I'm going to give you a straight answer. And I just don't abide by that kind of dishonesty. Like I fully believe they could have been honest with Kevin and Kevin's father still could have been Kevin's father. It happens all the time with adopted children. They know they're adopted and they know their parents aren't their biological parents, but they still treat them as their parents. And I just, I don't think it was right for them to take that decision away from Kevin. Lori, and Kevin's adoptive father was always really cold with him and not much of a father. Yeah, and that's kind of the vibe that I got too, like that he wasn't really around much and that they didn't have much of a relationship anyway. And so... Elliot basically was Kevin's father from the time he was 17, 18, 19 on. He's been his father figure. So what is the harm really at that point 
and saying he's not your father. So Kevin and JL as a couple, I asked Catherine for the broken brooch because like we've established, their story kind of continues over the course of the next couple of books. This is not the end of the Kevin and JL story. I said, for the broken brooch, what are your thoughts on Kevin and JL as a couple? What makes them work and what are their biggest obstacles? She says, JL was going for a weekend of fun and time with her son. Kevin showed up in her life at the right time. And since Kevin has watched Elliot and David interact with women, he's all for a weekend of fun and games. Kevin and JL are such opposites. He's careful and she's a risk taker. But anybody who jumps a 1,200-pound racehorse has to be a bit of a risk taker. As for what makes them work, I guess the author insisted. Honestly, I never felt this relationship was as solid as the others. They didn't seem to go together. Readers complained about their relationship and I had to clean it up in the diamond and explain why all they want to do was fuck, to quote Remy. And for those of you who know Remy from later in the series, you'll get that. Even for Catherine, this relationship didn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just funny to kind of hear that from the author's perspective because like Elliot and Meredith's relationship, remember, if you guys participated in the last McLenna book club that I did, we talked a lot about how for most readers, Elliot and Meredith's relationship feels like the most realistic relationship because we see how much they struggle. I feel a similar vibe with JL and Kevin because it's not that instantaneous, everything's easy 24-7. They go through a lot over the course of this series. We watch how they navigate that as a couple, how they become stronger with every struggle that they have. It's a good representation of how two people so completely different can have a strong marriage eventually. So I appreciate that aspect of these characters in their relationship. It's not your typical brooch relationship. They have to work for what they have. I guess coming into this series, I started reading this series right before Sunstone came out. So pretty late on in the series. And I got to see the whole arc, like back to back to back to back. For me, this couple makes a lot of sense. But it's just interesting hearing the author's take on it and how she came up with it and how when she was initially writing it, the characters didn't really make sense to her. Like they didn't go together the way that a lot of brooch couples do. Kevin and JL are each other's foil. And I really do feel that they mirror each other in a lot of ways. Catherine talked about how JL is a risk taker and Kevin is cautious, but I feel like they also rub off on each other a little bit. Kevin becomes more of a risk taker with JL. JL becomes a little more cautious when she's with Kevin. Their personalities start to bleed into each other a little bit and they start to understand how their relationship can function, how they can take two people who have been independent for a lot of their lives and kind of mold it together into something resembling a functional relationship. Just a couple of tiny examples of how opposites attract in this case. Very early on, like right after they meet, JL is talking about how she enjoys sunrise 
and a good cup of coffee. And Kevin says that he enjoys sunset with a good glass of wine. And it seems at first that this is a complete juxtaposition, that this is like total opposites of each other. But what it really tells you, and I think this is very telling of their relationship in general, it says that they both enjoy the little moments in life. They love a little bit of quiet, peace, and serenity. This is, I think, a conversation that they have when Kevin is stretching her out before they go on their run in the first couple of chapters. It really kind of is just like, when do we actually get to see Kevin and JL enjoy sunrise and a cup of coffee or sunset and a glass of wine? Because I don't think we ever get that. Like, I think that their life is just freaking crazy from this point on until they kind of just fade out and other characters take their place. JL and Kevin are both extremely strong characters on their own. And I think that it's a bit of understated strength. JL, like I was talking about earlier, she's very much an unassuming, she's very tiny and kind of feels like she has to puff herself up to make herself bigger and be able to defend herself and make people realize she's feisty and that's kind of her personality. Kevin, on the other hand, is just not as much of a dominant personality as some of the other men in his life and so he kind of flies under the radar a little bit. But they're both extremely strong individuals and the things that they've gone through in their lives. Kevin is always the person that is there for other people. That's his calling card. No matter what, you can count on Kevin Allen. That is still tried and true in this book and JL really finds that attractive in him, I think. This is the first man that she's found that is willing to be there for her that's not her partner or her brother or her father. That's a significant distinction. There's no obligation there. He's there because he wants to be. And I feel like that is such a statement and a lot of what draws JL to him. And one particular scene where we get that is when they're coming out of the cave after the explosion and JL is literally unraveling. She describes it as every thread tying her down is just snapping, snapping, snapping. And Kevin puts his arm around her as they get in the golf cart and drive off with Elliot and Meredith. And he says, you can't hide the doubt in your eyes. Don't let it take over your heart too. We'll find them both. Because she thinks at this point that Castellano and Austin are both missing. And she just can't comprehend, can't lessen the blame that she's shouldering on herself and she needs something or someone to lean on and Kevin is that person for her. For me, it totally made sense why she gravitates to him automatically because he's just that person that everybody leans on and I think that's part of his problem throughout this book is that too many people are leaning on him for too many things against his will almost. But for JL, he really likes her and he wants to be there for her. That's the distinction, I think. Like with all brooch couples, they have this effortless chemistry, but there's something that's so different about Kevin and JL. And I really think that it it 100% relates back to that charming, goofy personality that Kevin has. There's this flirtatiousness between them that really is attractive and almost lighthearted. They're both hitting on each other. She's teasing him about all of his cheesy pickup lines. Then there's this cute little banter that they have where Kevin says, are you hitting on me, detective? And then she says, I should be asking you that question. You're the one who's had his hands all over my legs. And then he looks at her and he says, 
not all over. If I'd done that, you wouldn't be asking if I was hitting on you. You'd know for sure. (laughs) JL is not totally experienced and comfortable in her own body. Having recently been off of her divorce where her husband cheated on her multiple times, basically from a few months after they got married until their divorce, she doesn't have a lot of self-confidence and a sense of self-worth. She doesn't feel sexy and attractive. Kevin brings that out in her. He makes her feel like a sexy, feminine woman. And I'm sure JL being around guys literally all the time because she's a cop with four brothers and a male partner and a 17-year-old son, she probably was thinking, you know what, why would I ever want to tie myself down to another man ever again? And then Kevin comes into her life. And I love this analogy that she has. She's kind of running a dialogue in her head. And she's talking about how every man she's ever known is dirty and disorganized and leaves socks and dirty underwear and clothes laying all over the floor. And she's like always with the damn socks and never matching socks. And then she looks at Kevin and she's like, I bet Kevin would have matching socks. Like he strikes me as the kind of guy that would have sock organizers. (laughs) That's just the distinction in her head. She can see a clear difference between Kevin and every other man that she's known. And I think that is really attractive to her on a lot of different levels. And it's fate that they even met because Kevin wasn't supposed to be in Napa that weekend. He was going to come with David and the boys days after afterwards for the gala and he decided to go out with Kenzie whenever she got out there because they were gonna go over some stuff for the new winery and he stumbled into JL at the welcome center and the rest is history but again don't discount the brooches like this may be a contemporary romance but the brooch is definitely a play the amethyst brooch even though it's broken and it doesn't function like it you know like all the other brooches but the magic is still there (laughs) there's a line that Kevin shares after a discussion with Pete where he tells JL, I thought we had something special, but turns out I was just a convenient dick. (laughs) And JL looks at Pete like, I am going to skewer you alive. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? You can't have these conversations with my boyfriend. But Pete is just no holds barred. I'm going to tell him anything he wants to know. And Lord knows I got some stories because I've known you pretty much your whole life. It's pretty evident that this is much more than vacation sex, as she puts it. Not to say that this is not like ridiculous set your hair on fire sex. It's like, holy frick, the shower sex scene. I was like, that just puts a whole new level on wet dream. (laughs) Because, whoa, they got some chemistry and it's like, it's fire chemistry, let me just say. I felt like this was hotter than the sex scenes that we got with David and Kenzie. And I was like, (laughs) it's just interesting because despite all of that chemistry that they have, and it's definitely there in spades, it's clearly much more than that. And I loved the scene where... Kevin and JL are down in the cave and JL is really starting to be discouraged about not finding Austin, not finding anything. And then they get to the cave-in and she's just like, well, we might as well turn around and go back because we've been down here for two hours now and there's nothing. And Kevin's 
just he's there for her. And she says, drawing strength from a man was new for her, but she was doing it now. Not only because she needed to, but because she trusted him. She depended on and trusted her fellow cops too, but her trust of Kevin was on a much deeper level. A man who would hold her and encourage her while sitting on the floor of a godforsaken cave would never stomp on her heart. It just goes to show that like she's used to relying on people for her physical protection, but not necessarily for her emotional well-being. And I loved that. I, I loved that idea that now she had somebody to lean on for that as well. Whenever she's witnessing all of these relationships that everybody else in the clan has, she's got this instantaneous reaction to kind of look away or to not be a peeping Tom, I guess, whenever Elliot and Meredith are hugging on each other, kissing and staring at each other intimately. And she thinks to herself, she had looked away when Elliot hugged Meredith jealous of the love they shared. She had silently prayed to have what they had. And if she and Kevin survived the day, that kind of love might be possible for them too. I think the rational part of her mind is like, you've got to be kidding me. It's been two days, JL. You're not going to spend the rest of your life with this guy. Get a grip on yourself. But there is part of her that has enough experience in the world that she's like, no, this is real. I'm not crazy. I liked the fact that at the end of the day, when Kevin's like, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? She's like, hold the phone, okay? We've known each other for three days, Kevin Allen. If you still want to marry me in six months, we'll talk. <laughs> so she's very down to earth. And that just shows that flip that they have both done over the course of this book, where we talk about Kevin being cautious, but then he's like, no, I want to marry you. And we talk about JL being a risk taker, but she's like, hang on, I'm not ready to get married yet. So now we talk about the good shit. Elliot and Meredith's reaction to this whole thing that Kevin and JL have going on. It really surprised me at first. I was not a fan of Elliot in this book. I felt like he was being very judgmental, not looking at the big picture, not respecting Kevin as a man and letting him make his own decisions, being very hypocritical. It just wasn't a good look for Elliot, quite honestly. And I know I said that I, I took a long, hard look at myself and like dug deep and I found a bit of sympathy because Elliot's been through a lot. He did this twice before, as far as he's concerned. He has fallen for a married woman and had his heart broken twice. The second time involved getting that woman pregnant and then having a son that he couldn't have an acknowledged relationship with. The last thing that Elliot wants is for that to happen to Kevin. And so he's trying his damnedest to prevent that from happening. But JL and Kevin are very adamant that they want to explore this relationship. And JL doesn't want to tell anybody else that she's divorced until she tells Austin because Kevin and Kinsey already know. So who else is going to have to find out? Like if a third person finds out before Austin finds out, he's going to be like 10 times more mad than he already will be in JL's estimation. So she does end up telling Telling Meredith, and I would have thought that Meredith would have told Elliot, and maybe she did. Maybe that kind of explains why Elliot seems to kind of back off of the Kevin JL firing squad <laughs> towards the back of the book. But a lot of stuff happens too, so I don't know, but I just felt like, yeah, 
I understand that Elliot is being a protective father and wants to keep Kevin from making mistakes, but also the argument that Elliot and Kevin have in the the visitor center or the welcome center or whatever, while JL and Meredith are having their conversation really irked me. I'm going to read this. The, just the dialogue so that you guys know which one I'm talking about. Kevin said, there was a time when you couldn't stand on your own and I never left your side. I need your understanding right now. I need you to trust me and you can't do that, can you? And Elliot says, no, I can't. I, I about closed the book when I read that. I'm not gonna lie because I love Elliot. I love Elliot and I love Meredith, but... Kevin has literally put his entire life into his relationship with the Frasers. And for Elliot to just flat out say, no, I can't trust you. I can't trust you to handle this on your own and to know what you're doing. I have a feeling that that stung more than anything Elliot has probably ever said to Kevin. And Elliot has said a lot of things to Kevin that he couldn't trust him. That's like below the belt, in my opinion. I don't think Kevin has ever done anything worthy of that kind of comment. So yeah, I was angry. I was really angry when Elliot said that. And then he continues on down that path because whenever they're planning the whole rescue of Austin, Elliot doesn't think that anybody's listening and JL's standing out in the hallway and Elliot looks at Kevin and says, I want you to remember what our priority is. Kevin says, you don't have to remind me. And Elliot says, oh, but I do. And then Kevin replies back, back off, Elliot. Austin is my only concern right now. And then Elliot says, then act like it. I'm just so mad. Guys, it's not okay for Elliot to say these things. It's not, okay? And I'm tired of it being like, oh, well, it's Elliot, so he gets a pass. No, it's not okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's my vent fest. But seriously, like, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, when we find out that a brooch is involved, it's just, oh, well, that makes sense then. I'm not going to fight it anymore. Really? Okay. Okay. Before we move on to the murder mystery action adventure element of this extravaganza. Anybody have any final comments on Kevin, JL, Elliot, Angela? Oh, I do feel for him in this, especially when he thinks Kevin is leaving and says he won't be able to cope with cancer without Kevin. Very poignant and vulnerable moment for Elliot. Yeah, I just think that Elliot doesn't appreciate the situation that Kevin is in in this moment because when it comes to their relationship, and Kevin even says this, I'm not your son, Elliot. I'm the hired help. This is part of the conversation that they have. This is where Kevin is at in his life. He's like, there's no place for me here. And until Elliot is honest with Kevin, that conversation can't go any further. I mean, I understand that Elliot, like he doesn't understand how he's going to cope with the things that are coming down the pipe for him without Kevin. I understand that that's a very valid fear for him, but that's a bed that he made. That's a decision that he made to not tell Kevin the full and honest truth. And it's biting him in the butt. I mean, I'm glad that everything is out in the open after this, but there's still a lot of resentment that this whole family is going to have to work through over the course of the next couple of books. I'm glad that that didn't just get dropped. I'm glad that we continue to deal with these 
issues over three brooches and the diamond brooch. And we really kind of dig into the relationships between these characters because it's a lot more than just a, oh, I'm sorry, or a, here's the truth. Everything good now? I don't know. I do. I understand that Elliot was upset when Kevin threatened to leave, but I can't be upset at Kevin either because to him, it looks like he's at a dead-end job. He can, in his eyes, move forward, move on, open his own accounting practice and have his own life and not be accountable to anybody but himself. And for a guy that has pretty much been at the beck and call of a family other than his own for his entire adult life, that's, that's for sure appealing. Alrighty, the DeSalvo murder mystery. This is kind of a complex one. I did not have any clue where this was going or what was going to happen. And the fact that this ended up being much more of a conspiracy than I originally thought. It just kind of kept building and building and building. We're kind of introduced right off the bat. Literally, JL shows up at the winery and a murder has just taken place from Salvatore de Salvo. She immediately is like, oh crap, is this connected to my case that I did in New York? If it is connected, have they connected the O'Grady name? Is Austin in danger? Like, what is happening? And at first, it's looking a lot, like a lot of similarities, like they could be linked the mob style hit, the use of caves, it's looking like drugs of some sort. Turns out that it's just a uh, very ambitious entrepreneur <laughs> and maybe a little bit of the cartel's involvement, but not the Sicilian mafia. It's the Sinaloa cartel, which is Mexican cartel. So a little bit of a, a different edge than was initially thought. So I write down questions as I go whenever I'm doing these book clubs. And then as they get answered, I like cross them off my list. And if they don't ever get answered, I ask Catherine at the end. So initially I had a lot of questions on the whole murder element of it. I thought, okay, so if DeSalvo was murdered for seeing something he shouldn't have seen, why wasn't Austin just outright killed for seeing something that he shouldn't have seen? I did wonder if it was maybe his age or if he just completely caught them off guard. And I think based off of everything being put together at the end of the story, it was a little bit of both. And then to come to find out that the plan was when everything was said and done to kill everybody in the hangar and Austin like holy shit that's a lot of people and they were just gonna mass slaughter them like line them up and and shoot them all whoa holy crap like we're not just talking about one person being killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time you're talking about killing 20 people <laughs> that's insanity we meet the detectives on this case Hollinger and Castellano and Hollinger I think it's off to a rough start with JL primarily like I do feel like he's a you're on my turf back off type guy but also I feel like she gets her hackles up because he reminds her of her ex 
Ryan. And so she jumps to a snap judgment on him automatic. That kind of gets his defenses up because he sees her coming at him, if that makes sense. So I think he's territorial, but I also think he senses her passive aggressiveness, if that makes sense. And then Castellano, he flew under the radar for me. I was like, oh, it's good cop, bad cop. He's going to be the helpful one, but he's going to do it under the radar because he's got this alpha male partner who's not willing to give any of the credit to JL and etc. You know, like that was kind of where I thought this was going. And then to find out in the end that he is actually a dirty cop, I was like, shit she went there (laughs) I was like oh that was a good one I did like that JL acknowledged though that Hollinger actually is a good cop he may be kind of a jerk but it comes from a good place and he does his due diligence every lead that she gave him he investigated out and made sure he had all the information that he could possibly glean from that tip I liked that that at the end of the day she was like I got to give it to him. He is a good cop. And I guess that should have been a little bit of a hint that if she was wrong about Hollinger, she was probably wrong about Castellano too. I love how she's like, well, I've been wrong before. And then she was totally blindsided by Castellano being a dirty cop. And she was pissed too. I feel like JL's in a unique position to be pissed because she is from the NYPD and she understands the necessity of integrity in investigating a case and being there for the right reasons and not giving in to temptation. Castellano had his reasons. And when you look at why he got into the situation that he got in, I felt bad for him. I mean, it all started out taking a bribe to cover up a senator's son's DUI case and kind of making evidence go away because they needed money for his son, Sammy, who has a medical condition. That one seemingly innocent thing that he did while his evil-ass brother-in-law Wilder found out about it, and it all kind of snowballed from there. But honestly, though, I was a bit pissed at his wife. I don't know what happened to his wife because she died before this whole book takes place. But the real victim in all of that is Sammy. And I'm glad, you know, that he has an aunt that is taking care of him and he's okay. But you got to think about the implications on your kid if this ever gets out. Like, you can't just assume that nobody's ever going to find out about it, I guess. I think that Castellano, deep down, was a good guy. And we kind of see that and how he shows up at the hangar. And that was one of my questions. How did Castellano find out that something was going down at the Montgomery hangar? Like, who told him that? He found out from being in cahoots with Wilder and he went to stop it because he, like, draws the line at murder. And that's not okay. When all of that happened, like, Wilder was going to pin Salvatore's murder on Castellano and kind of, like, wash his hands of everything. And that all kind of just got so twisted when JL got involved. Castellano is one of those characters that you're never quite sure how to feel about it. It's hard because you can see the good and the bad in a person. Like I said, I don't think that his bad decisions were made with any kind of malice. I feel like he did it because he needed the money to help his son, like to help pay for his son's medical bills. And it kind of just ended up getting him killed in the end after a whole bunch of crap. Anyway, they find out that Austin's being held in the cave that's on Montgomery Winery property. It's broken into three parts. So the front part is the wine cave where events are being held. There's the middle part where the wine barrels are stored. 
as they age because it's a dry environment and it's cool and it's a good place to store wine and age it. And then there's the unexplored rough part of the cave that nobody ever goes into except for, you know, the cartel that's setting up a drug operation on your property. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting situation and we get a little bit more of the cave in, in the next book, The Three Brooches, but it's one that Cullen and Bram explored a little bit back in the 18... 60s I think it was but it really hasn't been explored past that and so all this knowledge that they think that they're working off of is what Bram and Cullen were able to gather when they went back you know 200 years ago 150 years ago turns out that David had a survey company come in and map a modern survey of the cave because the old surveys of the cave that were done a while back aren't actually reliable. The iron ore deposits in the cave walls actually mess with the old compasses they were using back in the 1800s to do the initial survey. So they had a modern day survey done and the engineering firm that did that survey was actually hacked into. Jury's still out. Okay, so I want to know what you guys think. Do you think the engineering firm was involved or do you think that they genuinely like got hacked into that was one of the question marks that I still had because it wasn't ever really confirmed that I can recall I remember it being like Wilder could have been just hacking into the engineering firms or they could have been bribing the engineering firms so I'm not really sure what happened what do you guys think on that I thought it was really cool of David and Elliot despite me being pissed at Elliot, I did appreciate the fact that he was going to give JL time to go down into the cave and see what she could find before alerting the police to the other entrances because they're both action people and he realizes that she can't just sit on her heels and wait for a result. She needs to be doing something because if Austin were to die because of this, she has to be able to know that she did everything she absolutely could to save him. Despite everything that's going on and despite the fact that Elliot doesn't really agree with the relationship that JL and Kevin have, he's still recognizes that she's a mother and that she has to help like she can't just sit around and not do anything while they're down around in the cave they hear something and this is a cool little like where you don't see the clues being dropped until it actually happens and you're like oh that's why that's in there so there are two little micro conversations that happen and one is the conversation where JL is just you know being a mom and telling Austin don't pop your knuckles it's gonna give you arthritis and then the other conversation where Bram is talking to JL and Kevin about the cave and he says if you hear something and you want to follow the noise, wait until it stops echoing and go in the direction that you last heard it. So I'm like, okay, ominous. <laughs> and then they hear something, Austin popping his knuckles. And I was like, oh, now it all makes sense. <laughs> okay. They find him. And I love how JL almost settles into herself a little bit when she gets Austin attention and all of of a sudden he realizes that she's there and she said she can just kind of see him sit up a little straighter he's very alert but not aggressive and he kind of just gets some confidence back he knew that she was there and he felt like everything was going to be okay now there was something about
about that that made her feel really good. That he trusted her. And despite everything that had been going on the past little bit, her being there comforted him. And then I loved that the first thing he says to her after they start making their way back to the entrance, he says, I'm not going another step further until I say I'm sorry and I shouldn't have acted like that. (laughs) And then Kevin says, apology accepted. Move your ass. (laughs) Like, we're not talking about this right now. We potentially have people with guns coming after us. We need to get the hell out of this cave. So then as they're making their way out of the cave, something starts to niggle at JL because she's realizing that nobody is following them. And what exactly does that mean if nobody's following them? This is something that I think unless you're in the law enforcement field or used to kind of dealing with looking at people's motivations and trying to solve crimes based on those motivations you don't really think about and so she's noticing that there's nobody following them and she says that really means two things one they're confident that jl kevin and austin are trapped and two they must have strong law enforcement connections that can cover up the disappearances of all these people that have gone missing for them to not be concerned about somebody getting out and running off and telling the police that all of this is happening like they must have a law enforcement connection. So she's very confident in those assumptions, but when they get back and they find out that Elliot and Kenzie are gone and that the rope is gone and that they really are stuck in the cave, it becomes a whole other set of problems because they only have cell reception in one little spot and their batteries are running low on their phones. So whoever they call, they have to get help. So JL makes the executive decision to call Pete, even though he's 3,000 miles away and there's probably not a lot that he can do for them, but at least he knows where they're at and can get them help eventually. They've called everybody else. They've called Elliot. They've called Meredith. They've called Kenzie. They've called David nobody's picking up their phone and then they get a call back from an unknown number and jail's like i'm not effing answering this like i think she would be stupid to answer that because it is likely the kidnappers and that's going to pin down their location and god knows what kind of technology they have whether they could track that phone so who they do end up calling is james cullen this precocious little 13 year old boy he's there to help but should they bring him into it. Kevin's very wishy-washy on this because he loves JC and he wants to protect him. He doesn't know if it's the right move to draw JC into this when he's young and he can't really protect himself. What's the right move? And they end up coming to the conclusion that Elliot would expect James Cullen to do his part. That's why they eventually draw him into the fold with this whole thing. Because he's really their only shot other than Pete calling in law enforcement. But they're really trying to avoid that because at this point, JL's 95% sure that there's a mole somewhere in the police department, that somebody's dirty, and that any call that they make could be the wrong call because they don't know who exactly is involved. JC doesn't seem afraid of the prospect of imminent danger and he wants to help so they bring him in to help and he ends up being the one person that can get them out of this pickle that they're in. And I love that that's our introduction to James Cullen and his point of view that we really start to understand how his mind works a little bit. He makes me nervous 
as all get out. The problem with involving a 13-year-old kid is that he doesn't really understand and fully appreciate the danger of a situation. Like, yeah, somebody was just murdered and he's out running around the vineyards on an ATV looking for everybody and picking up random stray dogs. So yeah, there's an element of it that makes me extremely nervous, but he did it and his parents are proud of him and they have every right to be proud of him. He handled himself really well despite the situation and despite his fear for his family. So after Austin and Kevin and JL get out of the cave, the next step is to go and find the Frasers. James Cullen tells JL that the only place on the property that is no windows and only one door is the Welcome Center, except for there's a hidden door. So I don't know if that would work, but we don't talk about that because it's a family secret. And she's like, it says, JL covered her mouth to hide her smile. James Cullen must not have considered the bizarre stories of the brooches or his dad's cancer or Kevin's parentage to be secrets. And, you know, I was just thinking of freaking course, there is a hidden tunnel under the Welcome Center. Only Elliot and Meredith would have a hidden tunnel with a secret door underneath the Visitor Center. I got to thinking about that comment by JL about, you know, what... James Cullen does and doesn't consider family secrets. It's not so much that he doesn't consider those things family secrets. It's that he fully believes that JL has a brooch and because she has a brooch, that makes her family and because she's family, she's allowed to know these things. So that's why he says these things in front of JL. I mean, yes, to a certain degree, I do think that he's a bit of a blabbermouth as all 13-year-olds can be. But I also think that he... 100% doesn't see a problem with talking about these things to JL because he considers her to be part of the family now. So they rescue the Frasers in this whirlwind plot with BB guns and all of that. I thought that it was ingenious, kind of, like a really good plan. I was glad that it was Kevin that came up with it because I don't think he gets a lot of credit for his intelligence And for him to be like, you know what, actually, I have a plan. We're going to go to four different locations, kind of like all around the Welcome Center. And we're going to shoot out four different cameras so that they can't pinpoint which direction we're coming from. And then while they're blind, JL can go in and rescue Elliot, Meredith, and Kinsey. And it works. It goes off without a hitch. And I love how he's just pacing the porch, waiting for her to come back. And he's like, what the hell took you so long? And she's like, listen. Sin, okay, we had to run all that way back and we got here as fast as we could. So just slow your roll, buddy. It's just literally one thing after another after another with this entire plot. And so after they get Elliot and Meredith and Kenzie back, they were hoping that the rest of the clan was all going to be with them, but they're not. So where else could they have been taken? The logical conclusion that they come up with is the Montgomery Winery hangar at the airport because it's within immediate range of where the plane landed and they know that they were on the plane. They know that they landed. So there's only a few places that they could logically be. I mean, that's a lot of people. We've got Connor, Shane, Jeffrey, Rick, or Patrick as he's known in in this book, but he later becomes Rick. Pops, and then you've got David, 
and the boys, Jack, Charlotte, Bram, and their two kids. So 13 people. You can't just hide 13 people in a pothole. You gotta have somewhere to put them. So the hangar was a logical explanation. And so Kenzie, fierce, badass warrior that she is, although she's feeling like she's kind of on the back foot a little bit, I sympathize with her because she's so used to kind of taking control of a situation and going in guns blazing. And she feels like because she's pregnant, she kind of has to take a step back and let other people do the fighting for her, even though that's not really something that she has any desire to do, but she knows that she needs to protect her unborn child because nobody else is going to do that. And that she has complete faith in David and his ability to protect their sons. It's not going to stop her from going after them, though. She's like, we can debate politics and, and talk about all the shit that we've got going on as a family later. My sons and my husband are missing and I'm going to go find them and we need to go now. I really appreciated the conversation that JL had with Kinsey though. JL tells Kinsey, I imagine David has harped on you about taking care of the baby while he takes care of you. Well, he's not here and right now you have to do both plus rescue him and your children. I believe he'd expect you to do what you're trying to do. JL brings up a very valid point that David would want Kinsey to take it easy as long as she's able to but he's also fully aware of the fact that she can't sit back eating bonbons while everybody's missing. Like if she has to do it, she has to do it and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I could see where Kinsey could be a little bit frustrated though when they actually get to the hangar and Kevin and JL are like, whoa, you're not actually going in. Are you kidding me? You're pregnant. You're not going to go in guns blazing and freaking get shot. What did Kevin say? He said something along the lines of David would kick my ass to kingdom come if he knew I let you do that. <laughs> it's true. David expects Kinsey to come. That's kind of what we see whenever the rescue does kind of take on its full-fledged embodiment, I guess. So we see Kenzie is like, it doesn't need to be a big distraction. David is waiting to make his move. All we need to do is catch their attention and they'll take care of the rest. And JL's just thinking the faith Kenzie has in David, she also has in her brothers. So surely between David and the four O'Grady boys, they can take care of whoever is behind all of this. And she's right. So all they have to do is shoot the lock out of the door. And by the time they get in, Shane and Connor and Patrick and Jeffrey, they already have all of the perps subdued. Everybody else is protecting all of the children in the room, but it is just a moment of badassery. She describes it as the O'Grady's had cleared the field. Then of course they have the audacity to be like, what the hell took you so long, JL? <laughs> and she's like, okay, uh, yeah, well, I was kind of stuck in a cave and then I had to go rescue the Fraser. And now I'm here, all right? Don't everybody get rescued at once. I'll take care of it. It's fine. <laughs> God. Just brothers being brothers, I guess. But it turns out that the crew was intercepted when they got off the plane and that they were being held hostage by people who had intercepted the actual limo drivers that Elliot hired, took their place. And then according to the statements of the guys that were posing as the limo drivers, they were hired over the 
the phone, paid in cash, and then they were supposed to release the hostages at 6 p.m. Well, later we find out that wasn't the case, that they weren't actually going to let the hostages go. They were ordered to kill them. Everybody gets rescued and they're all back at the cottage and all going through the day's events. They find out that the security company that Meredith hired is also in cahoots with the cartel. So not only did the engineering firm either give away or get hacked and gave the surveys to Wilder slash the cartels slash whatever. So the engineering firm is dirty. The security company has been altering footage and manipulating security feed to hide all of this activity that is going on around the cave. And then the barrel restoration company that buys old wine barrels off of Montgomery Winery after they're worn out and past their marketable age, they're in cahoots with it too because that's how they're smuggling the cocaine out of the caves. They're putting it in the old barrels and then barrel restoration is picking up the barrels, taking the cocaine out and then continuing on selling the barrels. So it is this massive operation that's probably taken millions and millions of dollars to figure out all of this craziness. It all comes to a head with Wilder, who seemingly was a non-entity until Kevin and JL go down in the cave. And he's the guy that just so happened to be in California and was able to set up this mind communication device that would allow them to text between in the cave and topside. Turns out that this guy is basically the mastermind behind all of it. He's responsible for gaining the surveys, bribing the engineer, company. He is also Castellano's brother-in-law, so that's how he had his mole inside the police department. The mob-style hit was all a distraction or a false lead to make people believe that there could be a potential connection with the DeSalvo case in New York and completely take them off of the trail of anything that might actually be going on. So it was a very well-thought-out plan that kind of just all went to hell in a handbasket. Because of JL and her brother's role in breaking all of this apart, Wilder's pretty pissed at JL. No holds barred. Like, he fully plans to kill her when they run into each other in Kenzie's office at the Welcome Center. I was kind of trying to figure out what Castellano was doing in Kenzie's office, like what he was actually looking for. Something to do with the investigation, I'm guessing, but yeah, I'm not really sure what he thought was going to be in Kenzie's office that he was looking for. But it all ends up going to hell. Castellano tries to kind of call it quits on Wilder and be like, I'm not doing this shit anymore. I'm coming clean. I'm done with this life. And he gets shot, which is really tragic. I really felt bad about that. I know I was talking about it a little bit before, but he really just wanted to do the right thing and kind of felt like he was trapped in a corner and that. Then JL witnesses Wilder shooting Castellano, so you know he's not going to let JL walk away, and especially after she's completely ruined everything that he's set up at Montgomery Winery. He fully intends to shoot her, goes to shoot her. Kevin jumps in front of the bullet, takes the bullet, but it fragments on the amethyst brooch and creates several different little projectiles. One of them hits JL and the other massively tears up Kevin. It was a five-hour surgery to put him back together, chewed up his pectoral muscles, 
muscle, broke his collarbone, grazed a rib, and lacerated the brachial artery. So he literally would have died if Charlotte had not been there. And she like was able to clamp off his artery and like keep him from bleeding to death. If he had had to wait for EMTs, he wouldn't have made it. Freaking nuts. I just was not expecting this to end this way. This happens almost at the end of the book. And I was like, okay, well then. And I guess I probably shouldn't have been surprised given all the craziness that happened at the end of The Last McLenna. That's just kind of how these books are paced. So I probably should have saw it coming. I shouldn't have been so shocked. But man, Catherine, you keep us guessing, that's for sure. The amethyst brooch plays a pretty massive role, not just in the course of this story, but in how the magic of it works, but in actually saving Kevin's life. If it had not hit the amethyst brooch that he was wearing, the jail had given him to wear as a pin on his plaid, he would have been shot in the heart and died. Talk about fate, I guess. I love how JL is talking to her father in the hospital and he, she's like, so I guess the brooch is broken again. And he said, nope, there's not a scratch on it. Beyond saying the brooch picks who it belongs to and who the magic is aimed towards, there wasn't much that could be offered by way of explanation from Catherine, but I just am curious how that all works. I guess I have questions. I'd love to know your guys' thoughts. It's not a conversation I'm like super going to get into, but I would like to have theories on it. And I guess it's just one of those things that we have to draw our own conclusions on it. First, I want to know what it says about the brooch's properties that only Kevin and JL could put the brooch back together. And second, I want to know why the brooch broke whenever the Fraser girl was in the cave and she was stabbed, but didn't break when Kevin got shot. There's a lot of mystical properties about that amethyst brooch that I feel like are ripe for discussion and creative opportunities later in this series, but I just really, I feel like it says something about them and I'm just not sure what it says yet. Catherine basically told me, she was like, it's just each brooch picks its people. And so I guess when you look at it, they could potentially funnel their energy into protecting who they're meant to protect. Because the brooches, as we know from later on, without getting into it in too much detail, they kind of have a mind of their own. So I was just curious. Like, that's one of those questions. It's like one of the great unsolved mysteries of the brooch universe, I guess. <laughs> Catherine's like, maybe we'll find out when we return to the cave and unlock the door. I'm game. I am so game. <laughs> Barb says, yes, it does what it needs to do when it's necessary. Lori, and the power of the amethyst brooch is different than in the others for traveling as it revealed in future books. Yeah, I mean, it is different. And that's why I was like, I wonder what in particular makes it different. Like, there's just so many things about that brooch in particular that I have questions about <laughs> as a reader. We're nearing the end of our discussion. So we're going to talk a little bit about our new characters for this book because there are a host of them. And I know that that was one of the big things for this particular book was introducing a new cast of characters to continue the growth of the family and of the series. But this is also the first book that we see James Cullen as a full-blown point of view. I like that, but it also is telling you that eventually down the road as he grows up, he's going to become a vital point of view character for this series. So don't say I didn't warn you for those of you that have not read later books. He's got 
got this ability and seeing Meredith's supernatural tendencies towards prophecy, I guess it shouldn't surprise us that James Cullen is also embroiled in the brooch universe. And he says that he has this sixth sense. It almost goes beyond a sixth sense. The first time that we kind of get a vibe on it from his point of view, he says a weird vibe had invaded the house a week or so ago and he had yet to put his finger on its pulse but it seemed to swirl around his parents. And then he goes on to say his spidey senses were tingling and tingling bad. He is able to sense things in the air. It's a bit different from what Meredith does I think. Whenever he meets people, there are certain people that like he gets feelings on and that's why Austin was brought into the fold because he just knew that Austin needed to be nurtured and kind of brought into the family and a place needed to be made for him in some way. His parents being who they are, they 100% believe that what James Cullen has is legit. Like it's not just a 13 year old making up shit. Not only does he have that otherworldly ability, but he's also extremely smart. He already at 13 has a good grasp on investments, the wine industry, the horse racing industry. He's been homeschooled, but he also has his own charity and his parents do a good job, I think, of teaching him humility. That's one thing that he really talks about is that his mother focuses on. She doesn't want him to be arrogant. And then he talks about how his father has taught him how to connect with people on a personal level and that that helps when you need to get information from them. And then he talks about how Kevin is his big big brother and how he can talk to Kevin about things that he never would ever dare talk to his parents about. This is just a really good way of showing how each of these characters that we have spent a good deal of time with over the past few books have shaped this boy into the young man that he will continue to grow into over the next few novels. The next man we meet is Pete Perino. He's so fun. He is a straight talk, no bullshitter. One of his favorite lines, don't bullshit the bullshitter. He's such a breath of fresh air. Like he's kind of like the O'Grady's, but he's different. He's Connor O'Grady's best friend. And I really enjoy watching him and how he interacts with JL particularly, because I feel like she can be kind of uptight and he likes to poke fun at her and kind of get her to come out of her shell a little bit. Lori, Pete grows on me eventually but he can also grate on my nerves. Pete doesn't grate on my nerves as much as his soulmate does. Let's put it that way. I'm not naming names, but yeah, Pete doesn't grate on my nerves as much as she does. Lori, in a way, one of the purposes of this book was to introduce the new cast of characters and grow the family. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. The four O'Grady brothers. So the whole inspiration for the O'Grady family is the show Blue Bloods. I've never personally watched Blue Bloods. (laughs) One of my best friends, he's like, you have to watch it. It's so good. And I was like, okay, well, eventually I will watch it. But yeah, the Reagan family on Blue Bloods, Aaron specifically inspired JL. I guess. That's what Catherine said. That was kind of the inspiration for this this family of cops. And there's a line that Meredith says to JL when they're talking. She says, the thing about Elliot is that he truly loves people and he enjoys having a circle of friends and family to care for. Most of the people in his circle don't have other family. You and Austin do. So you bring unique characteristics with you. You understand the give and take that comes from an emotional 
emotionally healthy family. So when you look at that line, she's literally putting it out there in black and white. This is the reason that the O'Grady's are now front and center in the Celtic Brooch series. They offer a different dynamic. They're bringing in a family unit of people that understand what it's like to be a family because before this, I mean, you're looking at characters that they've been on their own, really, other than like a select few people. Like you look at Charlotte and Jack, but they don't have family outside of themselves. I mean, look at Kit and Elliot, Meredith. Bram has Kit and Cullen, but they're not his relation. It introduces a very different mindset when you're looking at how people socially function. So it 100% made sense to me whenever I read that from Meredith's perspective. Connor is really the first O'Grady that we get any sort of attachment to. O'Grady brother, I should say. And he's the oldest and he resembles Austin a lot is actually how JL describes him. He looks a lot like JL as well. They all have auburn hair and green eyes. And then all of the other O'Grady's have the same auburn hair, but they have light brown eyes. The moment that I knew that I loved Connor O'Grady was this conversation. Pops says, we might not be dealing with the DeSalvos when they're still trying to figure out if it's the same DeSalvo family that they were responsible for putting away in New York. And then Connor looks to Pops and says, I don't give a shit if it's the Super Mario Brothers. If they've got Austin, whatever their name is, they're going down. So he's like, I don't have time for this shit. We're not dealing with it. They have Austin. We're going in. They're such a family full of badasses. I love them so much every single one of the O'Grady's. I asked Catherine which of her O'Grady's was the favorite of hers. And she said Rick is by far her favorite. I must concur. Rick is my favorite O'Grady. You can learn more about him in the Topaz brooch. For those of you that have not read all the books, that will be the one where you will fall in love with Rick. I guarantee it. A major theme in this book, which is resolution and change. We've talked about how JL and Kevin were really at a crossroads when we first met them. It really is getting the typical happy ever after that you get at the end of romance novels, but it's set up in such a way that you really see it as a completion of an arc for each of the characters, especially JL, because she was so screwed up and frazzled at the beginning of this book that we really start to see how finding her niche and like her people completes her. She says, then like the good detective she was, the puzzle pieces fell into place and the significance of the brooch being in one piece wasn't lost on her. For the first time in 17 years, I feel whole again, is how she put it. So like Angela, I think said way up at the top of the comments she said that Kevin and JL are both broken like the brooch at the beginning of this book and then by the end the brooch is complete but also Kevin and JL are more complete in themselves because of the revolutions that have been made we talked about that truth will out theme that's a big one for this book because there are so many things that are hidden we talk about JL being Austin's biological mother Elliot being Kevin's biological father JL and Ryan's divorce coming to light, all of that. Those are things that may not have necessarily come out 
if the brooch hadn't gotten involved. And, you know, at the beginning of this, I said, Jail's really not sure that she wants to be a cop anymore. A lot of the things that she's been through over the past couple of years have made her question her sanity a little bit, probably. And why am I continuing to do the things that I'm doing? After being shot a second time, she's realizing that she's ready to hang up her boots. And she has a master's in law enforcement administration. So she's thinking, you know, I can do other things with that degree. I don't have to be a a cop or a detective. And so when Elliot makes the offer to her to be the VP of global security at MacCorp, she is flabbergasted, but I think it's also a really good opportunity for her. It comes at just the right time when she thinks she's ready to make a move. And just like that offer that Elliot made to her, Elliot has also made offers to their father, Shane and Connor, Patrick and Jeff. Jeff is finishing up law school at that point. Rick is not ready to make a move yet, but Shane and Connor and Pete have all been offered VP positions and they would work for JL, but they weren't going to make a decision until JL had made a decision. All of those people are coming into the fold for the rest of the series. It makes for some interesting stories, let me tell you. Probably one of my favorite lines, and I'll share this with you, is a line that JL's mother used to tell her. It says, tears are only water. Roses can't grow without it and neither can I. I love that. I thought that was so cute and very poetic, I guess. And then JL says she knew, like Pops, that growth had nothing to do with height and everything to do with forgiveness, living comfortably in your own skin and loving others. And I'm like, if that doesn't sum up this book, I don't know what does. It was a very fitting conversation for JL and her father to have about forgiveness, about forgiving yourself as much as forgiving others. A couple of series updates that we get in this book. At the very, 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 very beginning, when JL walks into the Welcome Center, she notices that on Kit's portrait above the mantle, it says that Kit passes away in 1913. So with the advent of the Moonstone brooch and everything that has been said about that, we're getting close. We're not quite there, but we're getting close. So I am curious. I know there's probably like a crap ton of time travel and and craziness that goes on in between, but something's gonna go down. 1913, mark my word. Moonstone brooch happens like 1901, I think. One big thing that was kind of pointed out was Elliot's cancer. That's a big overarching thing that kind of gets touched on a little bit over the course of the next couple of books. This is the explanation or part of the explanation for Elliot's testiness. He's already so stressed out. And then I think he's dealing with knowing that Kevin's unhappy, not being able to tell him that he's his father and like eliminate some of that stress from Kevin knowing that Kevin being unhappy might result in him leaving the company. There's just a lot going on. And then you have all this shooting happening and he's got this cancer diagnosis and it's really just a stressful time for Elliot. And so, like I said, I find a little bit of grace for him, but still excuses only go so far, you know, like I get that you're stressed out and I get that none of this is helping, but I don't know that that entirely excuses it. We find out at the end that he's seen three different doctors and they've just recommended a a way and see approach. So that's kind of where we're at with this. It's just kind of floating there in space and we get a little bit of an update on it here and there. And the big thing is Amy Spaulding has gone missing and she's mentioned a couple of times throughout this book. James Cullen mentions that she's gone missing at the beginning and then all the crap happens 
And then at the end, Jack says that he picked up this book that he saw at one of his book signings because he thought it looked interesting. And when he was reading it, he found a picture of Amy. So this is the start of Jack's trip back to New York in 1909 to find Amy Spaulding and the beginning of what we assume is going to be his love story. What's funny about it is that Jack is literally like on bended knee asking JL and Kevin to go with him to find Amy because nobody else will go with him. JL is basically like, you're freaking crazy if you think we're going to go with you. Like we're recovering from gunshot wounds. And then they have a really cute conversation, Kevin and JL. JL says, how can you be excited about this after all you've been through in the last few days? And then says, he pulled himself up with effort, grimacing as he did and gazed into her eyes. What we did scared the hell out of me, but we did it together. I'm stronger with you, partnering with you, than I've ever been on my own. If your brooch hadn't been broken, we would have met in the past. This trip won't be our story. It'll be Jack's. We'll just go along for the ride. Besides, there's no war going on, so it'll be safe. And she says, there may not have been a war going on, but New York City in the early 1900s was a cesspool of crime. And then Kevin says, in that case, I'll be sure to pack my cape. So <laughs> it's decided they're going to go with him. I love the diamond brooch. The diamond brooch, the broken brooch, and probably topaz are my top three. So yeah, it's a good one. I'm really excited to talk about it. But before we get there, we got to talk about the three brooches. I did ask Catherine, I said, Amy's disappearance occurs in this book. Did you initially intend to roll right into diamond or was the three brooches always part of the plan. She said, I didn't have a story for the diamond and had to answer the question of what would happen when the three brooches came together. So that's why it took place. So we have to cover that one before we can cover the diamond. But it's interesting that they all kind of blend together. Like up until this point, it had been three years separating each book as far as the time between stories. And then we get the broken brooch, three brooches and the diamond brooch all kind of running right into each other. It's very good. I'm excited to talk about these next few books. And with that, that kind of wraps up what I've got, guys. Angela, is JL the baby or Rick? I don't know the oldest to youngest. Connor is definitely the oldest and JL is definitely the baby. I'm not quite sure what the order of Shane, Rick, and Jeff is, but I think Rick might be the brother ahead of JL. I'm not sure. <laughs> Jan says, my Friday night date with my TV boyfriend, Tom Selleck. <laughs> Honey, I agree. I love Rick. That was a favorite story. Yeah, it is a great story. Angela, love Rick. Connor's a close second. We don't know the other two nearly as much. Yeah, I think it's just that there's so many characters at this point that it's just so hard to fit all them dang O'Grady's in there. I mean, I'm sure they're all amazing people. And you know, like, Jeff is happily married and with kids, but Shane is still a lone wolf out there in the world somewhere. So I hope, not necessarily that he gets his own story, story, but that we find somebody for him. In the grand scheme of the McClinic clan, surely there's somebody out there looking for a man. I'm sure Shane O'Grady would make a great partner. Catherine is saying that the Moonstone is going to take place in 1901. That's what I thought. It looks very interesting. I'm very excited. Lori, Jack is one of my favorite characters. Jack is my favorite character. Like, not necessarily my favorite 
man. And so I guess I should make that distinction. Kevin or Rick are like, if I had to pick a partner from all the Celtic brooch men, Kevin or Rick would be my two. As far as the character that I think is the most interesting to read, has the best character arc, and has the most interesting story, that would be Jack for me. He is my favorite character to read. Not somebody I could see as a life partner, but somebody that I like to read their point of view and their stories. So Catherine says, eventually there will be a story in Australia with Shane. So hearts on that. I love that. Alrighty, guys. Well, I hope to cover the three brooches before season seven airs, but I'm not sure that that's going to happen. First off, it's been hard to get this book club done with a broken wrist because I can't type like I normally would. So I was on a time crunch to get this done and I could potentially have this until so I don't know that I will be doing it. If I do do the Three Brooches book before season seven, you will hear about it pretty shortly after the trailer airs. Because if I can squeeze it in and I have my brace off and everything by then, I will make the event and I'll let you guys know. If not, then we will pick back up with the Celtic Brooch series after season seven. I hope you'll still be around and hanging in there for me. If you have to read ahead, I don't blame you one bit. It's been great talking to you guys today. Hope you enjoyed it. And I will chat at you in a couple of weeks whenever I start back up with Men and Kilts. Bye.